Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. And welcome back to the Notion Podcast. And as always, I'm with Stephen. How are you, Stephen? I'm good, Paul. And you? Very, very good. We're recording at a rapid pace these days, but our listeners will not see that because they're receiving the podcast very well laid out on Wednesdays. What do we have with us today? We have Lily Basher. Lily is a pricing strategist at ProfitWell. I'm a really big fan of these guys. I think they're really one of the world-leading thinkers and practitioners, importantly, on pricing in the SaaS and technology space. And uh, Lily is one of the pricing strategists there. Uh, Yeah, I'm delighted to be able to have the opportunity to talk to her. But that's the topic, pricing in enterprise SaaS. Hi, Lily. Hi, guys. How are you? We're very good. Thank you so much for making the time for us. You are based in the West Coast, East Coast? Where are you? We are based in Boston, Massachusetts, in one of the the nice old buildings here. So we've we've got a good setup going. We're very jealous. But (laughs) then again, you know, it's closer to what we have in London, also weather-wise as well, actually. (laughs) Yes, yes. We we get a little bit more more sun than you guys i think oh, at, least, yeah. at least today it's a nice balmy 95 outside wow oh, yeah, very, very yeah, nice. you're making me jealous <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen, do you want to give a little bit of context to our listeners about pricing or do you want to jump right into the questions as you wish a little bit of both and a little bit of an intro to lily because i think it will add to the context you know we've invested in 55 b2b SaaS companies over the last uh, eight to nine years and I think it's fair to say across all of those companies and and across the whole ecosystem, very few spend enough time obsessing about pricing. And, and, you know, this is the critical exchange rate, if you like, between product and value with a customer. The guys at ProfitWell, I think, are are world-leading thinkers on pricing strategy. And Lily, I'm sure, would tell us a little bit about the research that, that they've done that really highlights how little time many tech companies think about pricing, that it can have a critical impact on speed and growth. And we're delighted to always talk to these guys. I'll just give a, maybe so Lily won't have to do it, just talk a little bit about what (laughs) what these guys do. They serve over 5,000 subscription companies, supporting them on their pricing strategy. You know, big companies and market-leading brands like Autodesk, Atlassian, Zora, and have worked with a number of companies within our portfolio as well. And then, Lily, you're a pricing strategist. You are spending every day talking pricing with some of those massive companies. Yes. So, Stephen, one of one of the aspects of my job, I actually work directly with the product teams, with the founders, with the C-suite to help them better conceptualize and better effectuate their actual pricing strategy with, with new par- products, with legacy products, with perpetual to SaaS transitions, things like that. And we love to work with people like ProfitWell because they obsess about this aspect of the scale-up journey. And they obsess about it right the way across from right at the beginning, you know, the startup journey. Are you solving a problem worth solving? And how do you think about pricing at the very, very early days? Grow up, you know, five to 25 million in, in revenue. Can you build repeatable, scalable pricing strategies and then scale up 25 million plus some of the companies they're talking about way past that point really complex and sophisticated pricing strategies 
I think this is an area that you know we will keep coming back to in this podcast series. Maybe we could kind of jump straight into it. Why is it you think, I mean, you guys have done the research that the very few SaaS companies really spend anywhere near enough time on pricing strategy. But why do you think it is so important that they do? Yeah, great question, Stephen. So I think one of the interesting things is, you know, when we when we think about price, number one, you know, the way you price your products, it's, it's representative of value, right? So a company exists explicitly to provide value to its customers or whomever it's servicing, whether that's through a product, a service, whatever it is that you conceptualize in terms of why you've become a company or why you're going to market. And so ultimately, when we think about pricing, we think about what that represents is to a degree that that value is how we're going to monetize and become profitable. And so I'm assuming to a degree, and this might be woefully ignorant or or a little bit wrong, but I think to a degree people go into business because ultimately they'd like to make a profit on what what service that they're they're providing, where they're putting their blood, sweat, tears, efforts, thoughts, strategies, because they can do it better than somebody else. Or they think that there's a need there that they can answer and provide that value to. And so what pricing does effectively is capture, again, where that value is. And, and people who do it really effectively scale and grow and succeed. And in equal measure to a degree, people who miss the mark can fail very notably and just miss it. And I think when we think about why sometimes people overlook pricing and kind of a fun fact here that I'm sure you've heard us say a dozen times because we reference it oftentimes is that the amount of time the average business, and this is thousands of businesses we've talked to, in, in you know survey analysis, the amount of time a business actually spends on pricing during the lifetime that they've been in business is oftentimes less than the amount of time they've spent purchasing cleaning products, <laughs> which <laughs> is a ridiculous, it's a totally ridiculous thing to say. It's kind of, you, you kind of think it's absurd, but a lot of times people overlook this pricing lever when they think about their monetization strategy and how they're planning to, to capture that value from their customers and, and really make sure that they're extracting the most or, or and providing the most in equal measure. A lot of times the thing that they focus on is instead, you know, how do I save on costs? How do I sell more? As opposed to figuring out what the most effective value position from a pricing standpoint might be. That's a, a great analogy. Uh, you know, I'm I'm staggered. Staggered. I'll take that back because I don't I don't want to kind of sound like I'm being down on our founders, but um, <laughs> it surprises me how little companies think about this. And you know what really surprises me is how often unwilling they are to talk to their customers about pricing. And mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. when I've sat down with Patrick and he's done a, a number of sessions for our portfolio, he, he says something that always resonates. For the love of God, talk to your customers. Absolutely. Understand what they're willing to pay. Understand why they're willing to pay. Understand what they value. That to me is the essence, I think, of the pricing discipline. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, when we think, and, and I'm going to kind of allude to when you, when you talk about how those companies first begin and they're small and as they want to scale and become more complex and have more to offer. When you think about that initial, you know, idea, that kernel of starting a business, you're thinking about, you know, what is it that I'm doing? You know, what is it that I'm offering? But oftentimes you, you forget to think, is this something that my customer wants? Is there a market fit? Is there a need? And that's where, and you know, that, that willingness to pay that validation through an exchange of currency is that validation to a, to a certain extent, you know? So 
a good example that we can think of from a, from our startup standpoint, I was just talking to a colleague about this before our, our chat today, was Fisker Karma. So have you guys heard of Fisker Karma before? No. No. Okay. So it's a, it's a car company, a, a currently, I think, bankrupt car company, but they were the original souped up all electric supercar. You know, they were the pre-Tesla. So they were this VIP, amazing, all electric vehicle. I think, I think... I think my colleague said to me that Justin Bieber got one in all chrome. And I mean, it's like hundreds of thousands of dollars, like a beautiful vehicle, clearly had a certain type of audience, but it was really, really expensive. Now, mind you, I, I mean, I don't know what you guys drive or if you even even drive, but I, I, I personally think some of the models of Tesla are, are a bit expensive, but they're not expensive to everybody. There's a better market fit in terms of how they position the go-to-market, the way that they're set up, and they are far less expensive than the several hundred thousand dollar version of the all-electric supercar Fisker Karma. So even in that instance, in terms of a obviously a much more large-scale Far more multiples of millions than, than probably what we're talking about in this example, but it's a pretty visceral example. Clearly having the pricing scheme a little bit off and not knowing your audience or not knowing the exact fit of who you're trying to talk to leads to a negative outcome as opposed to rampant success, which is what we're seeing with Tesla to a degree. I'm just looking at some pictures of the Fisker Karma. Damn, that's a beautiful car. They're beautiful, right? They're really beautiful. They look like James Bond if James Bond were a green, environmentally friendly, young urban resident. <laughs> In that case, you know, these guys come with this fantastic car, looks like a Batmobile, and, you know, and they want to get into the high-end market. They might not want to reveal they're doing that. So how can they, and maybe that applies as well to some, maybe not all, but startups, how can they think about pricing beforehand, before actually going to the market? Well, absolutely. So so it kind of depends. It kind of depends, Paul. So if you think about it, what market are you going after and what is your lofty goal? So in a Fisker Karma kind of situation, that's obviously a niche population that only a few people could probably afford a car to that magnitude in whatever volume they're trying to sell, right? Right. I'm Personally, I'm not going to be using my quarterly bonus to, to go buy a Fisker Karma. Um, when you think about a company going to market, when you, whether you don't have a product in, in mind or you don't know the pricing or you don't know exactly what you're going to try to offer and seeing if there's that product market fit with your audience, how big do you think your customer base is going to be? So if it's really large or if it's really small, talking to... 10 people is really not going to have a marginal or a material difference on your bottom line in terms of how you try to figure out what you're doing and, and, and how you position yourself, how you price yourself. Even talking to kind of trusted peers in the space or talking to customers who you know are maybe of peers in the space, things like that, to try to understand where there's validation, invalidation of some of the things you're thinking can't hurt either. So, so we are fully behind the support of talking to current, talking to target, talking to former customers to help understand what their opinions and their perspectives are. Because realistically, they're who's going to tell you whether you're crazy or whether you're spot on. Sometimes I think some early stage organizations can find that quite daunting. They feel that this is a question they shouldn't be asking. You know, what are you willing to pay for this? Sometimes that's quite a big hurdle for them to overcome, isn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a variety of different ways you can explore that. And I'm not going to try and give away the, the recipe to our, our secret sauce in, internally, but you know, you can go out to a variety of different survey platforms and talk to generalized customers. If you really do know who you're trying to target and you think that they're the right people, you can take your product and make it brand agnostic. So not necessarily associated with you if you're worried that it's going to be linked to your title, your brand, and your, your positioning strategy. You can 
you can kind of white label it to a degree, you know, and, and pull that back. But you can also, you know, trust that positioning yourself and getting that information will exceed in value any kind of cost or negative implications that you may experience. So knowing that getting the information and pulling that bandaid off to just get it, regardless of how self-conscious or how painful or how many iterations you may have to go through to really extract value that makes you feel confident is more valuable than sitting there guessing. Guessing is something that we highly discourage among our clients, current, former, and future, just in the sense that you don't know any better from what you don't know. You'd be surprised how many people can get in their own way. And that doesn't mean I'm talking about the Joe Schmo startup who's only at 1 million in total monetization ARR. That could be including 150 million, 200 million, 1 billion in terms of, of annual revenue. You know, we see problems like that where people just sometimes are concerned that, that they have a plan, they think that this is right, but don't want to ask the market. But asking the market really does give you a better indication than, than just kind of your guess on your own. One of the things we look for in the companies that we invest in as they move out the kind of what we call the startup phase, they've achieved product market fit is a repeatable pricing model. And I'd be interested in how you see companies go about formalizing kind of a repeatable value-based pricing model. So when we think about, I think, just kind of repeatable model. I think you're almost speaking to a value metric that effectively scales. Is, am I hearing you right there? I want repeatable in terms of it's consistently applied. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so I've got 10 customers and they're all POCs and they've got slightly different pricing structures. That's fine. Okay. You know, the early stage, but now I've got a hundred and, and we're looking at cohort of these and said, this is the ideal customer segment. And we've got a consistent scalable pricing model we're applying to those organizations. How do I get from the, the highly creative product market fit, I'm kind of figuring this out, to repeatable and scalable? Okay, yeah, yeah. So that's really understanding value metric kind of symbiosis to a degree, right? So the ideal way that we would want to position or price ourselves when we think about that from a business standpoint is that kind of outcome-based, that value-based positioning where it's mutually beneficial for you and your customer so that the more that they want to use you or the more that they scale up in size or the more they want to purchase your service, they're getting more value similarly. So it's not only beneficial to you in terms of the monetization aspect, it's beneficial to them in terms of the utilization and the value that they get when they extracted out of you. So, so it's absolutely different based on every single business, every single customer base. And it, it certainly can change depending on how wide you go, how small you go in terms of market reach. But realistically, you know, there's signal that starts to become clear. And if you're not sure, you can actually ask again, similar to, to before, ask the customers, what seems to make the most sense in terms of how you'd want to pay or what, what resonates in terms of of what value metric is scaling. So what's interesting to us sometimes is we talk to businesses that have, you know, a singular primary value metric that works really well and leaves it at that. We also work with customers where they have one, two, maybe three value metrics that slightly customize based on the audience that they're catering to and, and the needs. And that allows a little bit of variability and control to their customer and how they'd like to, to self-price and self-select in the way a solution fits to their needs. And then we talk to customers who have an totally complex, unnecessarily matrices, you know, and these, I'm sure these are not real words that I'm using right now, but heavy matrix rate card of how sales has to be enabled to price and quote. And oftentimes that conversation is exactly what you say, you know, Stephen, to your point where they're, they're actually talking to us because they say, help us simplify. We're talking to hundreds of customers and they need to figure out 
the per seat pricing with gigabyte storage, with RAM upload speed, with this, that, and the other thing. And it's making it more difficult for our sales to be able to close deals quickly. It's making the customer more confused when they're seeing something on the website and they don't know where to self-place themselves. So it's, it's again, it's requiring that we have a sales force. So a lot of it depends on how you want to position yourself. So do you want to be something that can allow a customer to have you know, a low-touch sales purchase where there's one, two, maybe three value metrics that they identify with and they can say, okay, if I go over here and I go down here and this has the features that I want and this at this price point and then it enables me with this output, I'm there. I can see it. And as I continue to grow and as I continue to scale, I'm going to slowly move myself into this next tier. That makes sense to me. Or do you want something that's going to be heavily complicated, heavily nuanced that requires your sales staff to be able to walk them through exactly what that looks like? In which case, it's a more customized experience, a more customized process that you need to be prepared to not only train your your sales personnel to speak to it effectively, clearly, and convey the value of why you're doing that, or be prepared that there may be additional complexity and maybe additional confusion and maybe maybe some value left on the table by customers who are frustrated by that that level of lack of of clear consistent pricing. I wanted to pick up on a point you made about the impact of a simple but scalable pricing on on speed, making it easy for customers to to buy. Have you got, you, I mean, you guys do a shed load of research and if you've got some some evidence to back up the impact that pricing can have on speed of customer acquisition? I don't have it at my fingertips, but I do know that having a low-touch sales model absolutely encourages faster uptake, faster purchase, faster everything generally in terms of conversion. In terms of any kind of additional complexity, when you start to have that that detail or you put that barrier in place, again, of having to speak with someone, a human, that requires an appointment. Mind you, there are ways that you can reduce barriers. For instance, having live chat bots, for having an automated process that will facilitate calendar holds on both sides of the sale, sale personnel and the consumer who's making the purchase, the client who's making the purchase. There's a variety of little things that you can do to circumvent some of those delays, but there really is kind of a tail and two folds of of where that low-touch SaaS model, that low-touch sales model, and that higher-touch sales model do, do divest in terms of, of the speediness. Mind you, the other thing that's often associated with that that people overlook is you know, the average contract value. So sometimes it's very low for those low-touch models. It can be $20, $50, you know, $60, who knows what that range may be, down to even $5 from a per seat basis or on a monthly basis or whatever that value metric looks like for that easy purchase. It makes it lower in cost, lower in effort, lower in resistance to overcome in terms of making that purchase decision. Oftentimes, when you have that complexity of those sales personnel required, those multiple value metrics inherent to the complexity of the solution with with those other pieces, it's inherent to the fact that the the contract value or the cost itself is much higher. So from a $1,000 software purchase per month, that makes sense. Okay, well, it needs to scale a little bit up there. Now, somebody that I think has done a really good job kind of balancing it that I think we all know of that we've all heard of is, for instance, Slack. So Slack does a really good job in terms of getting you to get on board with the solution, right? They're a per seat pricing model. But what they've really done to effectuate their system and to really make it so that it's a worthwhile purchase for you to make and it scales and it's kind of a no-brainer and you just continue to roll through the, the, the effectiveness of their pricing strategy is that they also have a secondary value metric related to backup data, historical data storage. And so in that, not only as your organization grows, as you use it more, you start to pay for more and you're not going to second guess it because you want that referential information related to your organization. So that's an interesting perspective where 
the initial sale makes sense. It's logical, low touch, make it happen. But then when you start to see that the additional valuation where it becomes higher and higher in terms of the actual ACV, it, it doesn't make it more difficult to purchase. In fact, they've made it easy. So it's almost that converse of that complexity that's very traditional and very typical in other kinds of organizations. Many of us look at that Slack pricing model and the genius behind that in terms of the, the ease of acquisition, but the clear alignment with value as well that really makes it scale. And, and I think that's what you know, many of our portfolio companies are, are looking to do. Many of them are selling into the enterprise space, but they're also looking for a small and narrow entry point trying to create speed in the sales cycle and make it easy for the customer to go buy, get that product into their hands, but with a value driver that allows them to extract value as they deliver more value. Exactly, exactly. And that's something, I know we, we, we haven't talked about it yet, but when we talk about pricing at large, if, if possible, we try to encourage simplicity. And that's just something methodologically and, and anecdotally we've seen sit really well with all the companies that we advise and, and in all the data that we do and collect and, and in all the anecdotal research and the trend analysis that we've done, that simplicity, regardless of whether you're 1 million, you're 25 million, or you're 250 million, if you can inherently have that simplicity, which makes it an easier decision, easier to digest from a customer standpoint, that's really the sweet spot. So being careful and, and critical in terms of how you review the value metric that you have in place for your customers is really one of the, one of the prime things that you can do to make sure that you're going to have that fit and that resonance with your customers, target, current, or otherwise. As scale grows, I mean, I think your point about simplicity is bang on, but there is complexity that comes in as I sell internationally and perhaps multiple product lines and going through kind of a, a typical product life cycle. Can you give some, some examples of some organizations that are, that are really doing a good job as they get into that kind of scale up phase, you know, creating really sophisticated pricing models? Absolutely. Um, I think, well, one, you guys, I think you probably know about this already, but our CEO, Patrick, and our GM, Peter, do a pretty bang up job in doing pricing page teardowns. We have a number of them on our website you can watch where we do side-by-side -side analyses of various products that are in similar industries side-by-side -side with a like-to-like with a -like competitor. And so they, they do a pretty great job there. So I'm not going to beat a, you know, beat a dead horse to go into any of those kind of examples where we see really strong examples, great fit, things like that, and, and go into that, especially when they're global, multilinear product, that sort of product line sort of offerings. But in terms of, you know, off the top of my head examples, I'd say, you know, HubSpot is really great. Atlassian does a really great job. Slack, we just mentioned, obviously is really fantastic. Pandadoc is really fantastic. When you start to scale up and you get to that enterprise level, if there are multiple heavy levels of complexity, that's where we start to have those kind of recommendations of have that consultative conversation with the sales personnel or with the, the deal maker internal to your company that, that has that authority and that decision-making power and prowess to make it happen and where it is sort of more nuanced and customized to the reason that you have, have it in place. So whether that's because there's two, three, four different kinds of value metrics that scale differently based on each product line. So for instance, if you have a Oh, gosh, I'm trying to come up with a hypothetical non-branded but branded example. <laughs> if you have, for instance, 
a software that allows real estate brokers to understand pricing or, or to bill customers that are in commercial versus residential real estate audiences, right? They're going to have two completely volumetric systems that seem to make sense because individuals are going to make unique, different, nuanced decisions that will be in contrast to someone who is in a commercial purchase position, whether that's for a singular office, for multiple offices, for multiple buildings, you know, for associations, for property management groups. And so having an understanding, again, it, it all comes full circle back to that customer and who you're talking to, why you're talking to them, what their willingness to pay is, what their likelihood to buy is, what their driving need and pain points are. Understanding that makes it so that you can at least have a structure catering to each of those audiences that makes the most sense for your business and doesn't create undue complexity despite being complex. Those teardowns are world-class. I think Patrick has found his, um, his, his metier. His calling, calling that's agree, the yeah. word. They really are extraordinarily good. We're going to lose him to the talk show circuit, I'm, I'm sure of it, in, <laughs> in, another, in another five teardowns. The next thing you know, he's going to become the next Oprah or Phil Donahue. <laughs> no, they, they are great. And a, a lot of our portfolio, I know, follow that, as do I. So, Lily, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Um, i just wondering if there's like one or two takeaways that you'd really, things you'd like to say to, to our founders that, that they should obsess about when it comes to, to pricing. The two big things that come to mind initially is something that I'm, I'm sure isn't going to be a surprise, but you've heard it from me. You've heard it from Patrick, our CEO. I'm sure you've heard it from Peter as well. But number one, one is talk to your customers. Current, targeted, ideal, you know, there's a variety of different ways you can conceptualize who that customer should be, but talk to your customers. Oftentimes people just undervalue the voice of customer in terms of how you can inform your strategy and the nuance that you can learn. And obviously even starting small, whether that's 10 that you have casual conversations with, whether they're your best customers and trying to figure out why they're your best customers or they're your worst customers and trying to figure out why they have pain points or why there isn't a fit in terms of what value they're extracting from your solution or in terms of, hey, we think we're going to sell this product to this market. Let's find out if they actually think that they would need that and how much they'd be willing to pay. You know, there's no point in the journey in terms of how big you are, how many customers you have, how scaled you are, funding, no funding, uh, U.S., international, multi-geographic locations. There's no point where you should ever stop talking to your customers it's absolutely crucial. It will help you in a way that you probably could never conceptualize to, to the value degree that, that it will truly provide. The second piece I would say, and this is obviously what we make our bread and butter on because we, we live, eat and breathe this, but don't overlook pricing. I think a lot of times when businesses are scaling, it's kind of put on the back burner. You kind of throw a dart at the wall and you say, hey, this price seems like it fits because our competitor is doing it. Or, hey, it costs us this much to build. And if we get this many customers, this is our break-even point. Don't think that that's the answer and that's end-all be-all. Do the pricing exercise to understand what the value is that your, your customer is, is getting out of your solution. So occasionally, you know, we talk to customers and, and what's really interesting is they're so nervous that a customer, if they talk to current customers, they're going to suggest to put the prices down. When in fact, sometimes customers are sitting there waiting for you to make a price increase because they love the solution so much that they know that there's more value that they'd be willing to pay for. And occasionally in contrast, we see some that 
are commoditizing and that's a whole different conversation, but we'll save that for a, for a different day. <laughs> but in, in terms of pricing and this monetization piece, I think it's becoming more readily discussed now. And it's certainly something that's on, on everyone's radar, at least from, from our viewpoint and our vantage point. But it's not something that you can also just set and forget. So that's the third, that's the third piece. Absolutely, you know, number one, talk to your customers. Number two, don't overlook pricing. And number three, you can't set it and forget it. So one of the biggest pieces that we have to constantly remind our customers about and that we see as, as regular recurring themes and trends in, in the data of our customers and, and just in the marketplace at large is that the market is changing. Today, it is different than it was yesterday, which means there could be some new competitive offering. There could be some solution or some anti-solution or some non-solution that your customer is using to solve the problem that you could be solving for that you don't know of. So you need to be constantly vigilant and evaluating what that looks like. Since this is the biggest change you can make in terms of your monetization strategy to have the, have the strongest impact on your bottom line, better than cost savings, better than acquiring new customers, it has the biggest impact in terms of how you can monetize what you're offering to the market. So making sure that you're not saying, hey, it's been eight years. And yes, I have a client who is now in my, in my portfolio who came to me and, and said, hey, we haven't looked at pricing since 2010. That's a fun conversation to have saying, okay, so glad that we're having this conversation we should not be waiting that long to have this conversation. Let's make sure that we're being rigorous and attentive to this on a regular basis from here on out to make sure that we're positioning ourselves as strong as possible within our, you know, our worldview. So those are kind of, I think, three lenses that we should, we should always be thinking about as you go to market, as you continue to perfect and refine and, and alter what it is you're offering and who you're talking to and how you're, you're monetizing the, the offering that you're bringing to market. Thank you, Lily. That's been great. Very, very interesting and, and also very useful. Thank you. Before we say goodbyes, for those who are listening and have been listening to Patrick once in this series and once in the previous series, I believe it used to be called Price Intelligently and now it's a product under profit. Well, I mean, I remember that even Patrick said it on the podcast itself that they had these two kind of co-brand running against each other. The company is called ProfitWell and uh, one of the product is now called Price Intelligently. Am I correct? Yes, you are correct. So so we have a, we have a number of products and the Price Intelligently piece is kind of where we have a people-powered software aspect, which is where I sit and reside in terms of the work I do, advising companies one-on-one. -on -one. And ProfitWell is where we have a variety of more product-like offerings that, that allow you specifically to look at your customers and, and the activities that are happening within your business. Well, there you go. Thank you so much, Lily. That was absolutely great. Thank you so much for taking the time. For us, it's almost the evening, uh, but for you, you still have your day to get by. So thank you for having <laughs> <making> the time. <laughs> absolutely, Paul. It was great talking to, to both you and Stephen. Thank you, Lily.